Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Com. My daughter found a crack pipe at a playground, and uh, initially she thought it was a flashlight, so she brought it over and uh, showed it to me, and I said, put it down, because you never know what's on it, one for residue, and the new drugs uh, have such intense residue that Paramedics um, responding to overdose scenes have been affected by airborne residue, things that have gone through the traditional gloves. Um, so anyway, she was fine, um, and and we just put it in a garbage receptacle. Um, strange, because a day later, um, the question that came to mind was, why didn't we call police? It was not in our community. It was a small community that we were uh, visiting. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. So, but just one of those things, a reflection of the world we live in. I never experienced anything like that when I was growing up. Um, although we watched Pretty in Pink uh, this week. And... There are several scenes in Pretty in Pink when the high school students are all smoking, you know, right actually in the school, not outside of school, but in the school. And that came out in 1986, the Molly Ringwald movie. Everybody probably remembers that. Um, It was a follow-up, I believe, to The Breakfast Club, kind of playing off of her popularity in the 80s. Um, So, yeah, but back when I was playing Little League Baseball, which would have been... Maybe 1980, 81, somewhere around there. I clearly remember at least one player on my team smoking in the dugout, openly smoking. Um, We had concrete dugouts and no wood whatsoever. Um, But I remember one player just would take out a cigarette, light it, and smoke between innings. (laughs) And we might have had more. Um, but it wasn't anything he, that was frowned upon back then. And so I'm, I, I don't think, obviously, that continued much longer. And, you know, but no, we, we had a player on our team, and there might have been more, actually smoked uh, back when I was in Little League. So um, I, was, I was checking my email for a university that I instruct with um, on the side, kind of part-time. I've done that for, oh, let's see, about 15 years. And I checked it before we went on vacation to South Dakota, and I hadn't checked it until last night. And I really didn't have any reason to check it because I, I wasn't teaching anything this summer. I had checked with the university to confirm that I didn't have any classes assigned for the summer. And what had happened while we were on vacation is they emailed me saying, hey, we have a class that just opened up, and it's a class I've instructed before. Um, Would you like to teach it? And I opened the email last night, and the class, like, just starts. So (laughs) I emailed back, and I'm like, yeah, I would have loved to have instructed this class, but, you know, I just checked my email a couple weeks later, and... Obviously, you've assigned somebody else to it, and which they confirmed that they did. But that kind of sucks a little bit because it's a class I enjoy teaching. It's kind of one of my hallmark classes. It would have fallen in a really good spot during the summer for me to do that. Um, so, yeah, yeah, a little bit down. Like, I was really 
down when I opened that email and I was like, oh, like I just lost this opportunity. But I was also a little bit puzzled why the university, after not hearing back from me, didn't try to call me. Um, and there wasn't a message at home and there wasn't a message on my cell. And they also have my other email, my Gmail, uh, maybe you know, thinking, well, David, we told him he wasn't going to be teaching anything. And so let's just try this other email, like another attempt, like one more attempt to get a hold of me <laughs> and and offer this class. So yeah, I feel kind of bad about that. Just again, I really enjoyed doing that. It would have fallen in a, in a nice time frame for me. So um, I took a run last night and it's been hot here, like record hot, you know, in the 90s, but with the heat index like around 110, very humid. So when I ran last night, it was still about 80 degrees and humid, uh, which was which was pretty nice weather weather to run in. Actually, somebody else was out running, which surprised me because usually, you know, when I'm out at night, 10, 1030, there's nobody else out running. And if they are running, like that's a bad sign. They're probably running from doing something. But um, so I'm going to talk today about how a tackle decided the fate of school safety. And this is a this is a time right now for me when I've had to seriously assess my school safety position. Um, you know, what I'm doing in school safety, uh, what I'm not going to be doing in school safety. So over the past five years, I've decided to occupy a different space within the realm of school safety. And meaning I'm not into, I'm not one of the people that you'd bring in to talk about fortifying your school as far as like bulletproof doors and glass and metal detectors and those types of things. I don't, I don't do that. That's not my area of expertise. Also not my strongest area of belief that that is the way to make a school safer. So I'm kind of out of that. And, you know, that's something I was more involved with five years ago um, because you had to cover the whole scope of, of safety. But now it's kind of, it's gotten very specialized. And again, I, I do not believe um, strongly that fortification is the solution to school safety. I think it opens up a lot of marketing of safety. But anyway, so... I've had to deal with, you know, the whole populace wanting and, you know, legislators and, and parents and commercials and people wanting these fortified environments. So, and, and again, that's not what I, that's not what I'm about, the safety docs about, um, you know, school fortification and school drill fidelity has its place. Um, but, you know, I'm over, in this smaller area, kind of this more, um, this, this lesser explored, lesser mapped, not a lot of people visiting this place, which is talking about like threat reporting, threat identification, youth code of silence, pretty quiet over there. That's where I reside, making things accessible to um, students with disabilities, for example, threat reporting systems. So I've really shifted into that in the last year. And now pretty much exclusively that is all I do in safety is to work on threat reporting systems and any research that might have to do with um, helping youth break the code of silence, which I believe is based upon um, robust um, focus groups where kids get to talk and then you code those out and you learn from the coding. So, of course, you know, we talked about things like drill fidelity is important. A lot of these schools that put in metal detectors, things like that, which are not empirically proven, you know, to decrease school shooting. Um, but anyway, stuff like that. Um, bullying is is very awkwardly intertwined with school shootings. Usually it's after school shooting when someone will say, that the shooter was bullied um, and not necessarily that the shooter had left a message to that effect, but it might be someone saying, well, yeah, that 
that person had experienced bullying from this other third-party perspective. And we're, we're also seeing something happening right now with bullying with city ordinances um, and where cities are saying, we will find parents of youth cited for bullying. This probably has to do more with suicide and, uh, uh, for example, um, you know, students, kids as young as 12 taking their own lives, maybe younger, but I know of two 12-year-olds um, that one, you know, more proximal to where I live, you know, took their lives uh, due to bullying, okay? Um, the, that was the reason that was, was given by the, the parents, and there was, you know, documentation in one case um, to very, you know, closely identify that, that bullying had been going on for a long time. So, you know, saying that bullying is the precipitating factor leading to, to the suicide. So um, these citations are coming into place, these city ordinances, p- parents coming and, you know, they're pressuring the schools, but now they're also putting more pressure on the cities, the communities to do these citations. Now, some actually have put in place citations so the parent can be cited if their child bullies. I think the problem with that is you already have a tool in place called disorderly conduct to address that. So, and then I, I again, it gets very interpretive. Um, what happens if a student bullies in school? Is that considered, does the school handle that? But then also now does that become something the police must handle also? Um, I just don't know. And this is one of those things where it seems to me you're trying to legislate your way to a solution. Um, and I'm, I just don't see that that is going to be effective. Um, but, you know, it. I guess the positive would be that people are organizing and, and wanting to bring um, consequences and, or, you know, ultimately an end, a decrease to this. But I just, I just don't think you can legislate your way through additional fines and things like that for bullies and parents at bully um, as a way to, to address bullying. Um, so that's something that is in my wheelhouse too with a lot of work that I do, bullying, bullying reporting, accessibility, and, and threat reporting systems. And now once we have that crossover into where it can be, bullying can be, a violation of a city ordinance, um, how, how do threat input systems look? Do people still go to the schools? Do kids still go to the schools or parents? Or do they go to the school and the police? Do they go to, you know, just the police? I don't know. I think there's things that have to be figured out. So um, I believe, you know, I am going to make my contribution in universal design for threat education for, for threats, you know, um, making sure that people know what the threat reporting system is, how to report it, that the things are written so they're readable, the readability levels are there so kids, especially kids with disabilities, English language learners, can access those. So that's, that's going to be my contribution, continue to be my contribution, but you're going to kind of see some things fade. Um, away in some of the stuff that I do and and really start to focus in more on those interface systems. So I think much work needs to be done there, to be honest. There's not much that exists in reporting systems. And for example, you know, in some states, $100 million worth of school funding. And what's happening, you know, is it's being put into surveillance systems and, and things like this. But we're not seeing any equitable contribution, I mean, really anything that's going into researching the youth code of silence, like that's just not happening. Um, and what's out there is all old. And, and old is like five years or older. Um, because I mean, a lot of it predates even social media, you know, with smartphones and stuff like that. But if we we know that in most cases, whether it be bullying, whether it be school shooters, students who are shooters, um, that they've told somebody that they've left some kind of residue that's discovered. And sometimes it can be, 
you know, there can be a lot of it. A lot of people knew, a lot of documentation, posts, things like that, helping um, with those reporting systems, researching that and like why, okay, if four other people knew about it, why didn't anybody say anything about it? Um, or if they did, then what happened? But usually it's the case of like people, the kids just don't say anything about it. Um, and I, I know one case um, where a parent was very frustrated because she had information she was trying to bring to a school and had a very hard time then conveying to the school this information that she had learned because she had uh, access to her son's social media. He was showing some posts made by another student that were very, um, very disturbing as far as personal safety. And well, the parent probably should have called 911, but again, was taking this to the to the school and, and because they inter- they didn't know who to interface with with the school and it was just kind of very clunky. So, hey, my favorite search engine for research, JURN, J-U-R-N.org. It's gone. It's like missing. Um, so I typed in and I was going to do a JURN search. And anyway, <laughs> disappointing because like I, I used JURN frequently. JURN... Um, and I thought it was I thought it was much more kind of commercially done. It it seems like it's centered almost around like one person that was kind of putting this thing together. Um, but what Jern did is it got you access to a lot of university dissertations, um, research that wasn't funded by corporations. So when you go into Google Scholar, you get a lot of research. You know, intermixed with articles, but it, but it's stuff that's big and commercial, um, where you're getting more of the grassroots out of Jern. And plus, in Google Scholar, you have the situation you deal with where all of a sudden, you know, it's like here's the first page and a half. Now you have to pay for the rest. And he didn't deal with that game in Jern at all. So Jern is gone. Um, it's still. So what happened? I did some research to try to figure out, and a. Apparently, it got hacked several times, and then it got hacked to the point where they just had to take it down. So there's there's a WordPress site, and someone entered on, I think, like June 10th saying, it's down, but you can still go in this like ancillary site. But I did that, and there was nothing close. You, it didn't have the filters. Because um, Journal will let you pick, like, types of journals, um, look for keywords, different years and stuff like that. It was really, really slick. So I hope it comes back. But <laughs> that was one thing I always told people about in classes I instructed is, um, you know, look beyond Google Scholar and look to Jern. So like I had entire sections when I where I would have people use Jern as part of a, you know, project, part of an assignment to introduce them to it. Now it's gone. So <laughs> I have to rewrite that. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Today's episode will be focusing on Indiana middle school teacher Jason Seaman and how his tackle of a middle school shooter sealed the fate of school safety. So to preface this, um, in no way am I throwing shade on Jason Seaman. And you'll remember him as he played football, so he's a, a very big guy. Um, I believe in his late 20s, uh, a student in his middle school went to the bathroom, came out with a couple of handguns, started firing, and 
Jason Seaman, who was a teacher, tackle the student. Jason was also shot, I think, multiple times. Um, nothing serious, thankfully, and he recovered, or he's on his way to a recovery. He was discharged fairly quickly from the hospital. Um, but I want to talk about how what he did changed the landscape of school safety and how we're going to see things different across the entire country, kind of from this point forward with school safety and what this really means for marketers, communities, administrators, teachers, courts, students, police. There were some big things that came out of this because of what happened. Teacher, okay, teacher tackling a student to end a school shooting. So this wasn't a case where the teacher was confronted by the student, like the student came into the room and and was pointing the gun at the teacher, and this was a self-defense. This was the teacher going after the student, and I would say in the context, to end this rampage where the student then was targeting other students. So basically acting on behalf of the other students. But this is much different than how anybody really is is taught, you know, that you do not go after um, a school shooter if you're not armed, that, you know, you should be getting yourself, other students in the area behind a secured door. But you're always going to have these situations which will emerge when somebody is going to have an opportunity They're going to use their discretion. They're going to assess the situation, the context. They're going to use that opportunity and say, I've got I have a chance to tackle or take out this shooter and I'm going to do it. And I know my own life is at risk, but I have a pretty good shot of doing this, of of getting this person tackled to the ground, um, incapacitated, whatever, which I deem is going to save lives. So that's nowhere in a handbook. Um, and this is, again, this has changed things. So let me go through. I have much respect for this teacher and want to make that a hundred percent clear from this point forward. Okay. Um, but I want to also articulate the ramifications of his actions as they relate to school safety. Okay. The reality is that Siemens tackling of a student, school shooter, and bringing an end to a shooting rampage, coupled to Siemens' large size, athleticism, youth, and his well-spoken, humble nature, very modest, presents himself very well, um, he now is almost embodies, and I'll talk about this more later, the expectation that a teacher will successfully overcome a school shooter or die in the attempt, okay? So meaning like what Jason did is the expectation, the the unspoken expectation. I mean, you you can't put this in a handbook, in a a manual or anything like that, but it's the unspoken expectation that an educator is expected to do this, um, that this is their role um, to go out and to try to neutralize this this threat because you know we don't know the whole situation of this but let's say that he shot and killed and if he wouldn't have have gone after the shooter maybe there were five students near him that he could have gotten into a room and got the door locked and those students would have survived i mean you can play all these scenarios out it worked in this situation it's worked in some other situations but as a whole, um, you know, it, and this, again, was look at Sandy Hook, you know, with, with adults trying to confront Adam Lanza, that not being um, having, um, not being effective and costing them, you know, their, their lives. So um, the, what happens in schools is if you are cornered, I mean, if you have no other option, it's really then it's fight. I mean, if someone's in your room and and you know they they bring out a, a weapon and they're aggressive with it, you know, then of course. But again, this was different. 
this was a different situation. This was a teacher seeing an opportunity to go um, after this student shooter. So my question to you, so now we have this, I believe we have this, this expectation that's been created for teachers um, to go out there and to overcome, overpower the school shooter. And my other question, will we have the hero mentality among school staff? People who now have seen, you know, Jason Seaman and how positively people have responded to him, not criticizing the actions that he did, um, but also, I mean, this is, he's, he's gotten a new car. He's a parade marshal. He's been on several TV shows. Um, again, not to throw shade on him. This isn't of anything he's seeking in a glory grabber way. Absolutely not. But is this something now also that you are going to, I, I think, I think how this changes things is if I'm a teacher and I see how he's treated, I'm much more open to walking that boundary of, of discretion and maybe being assertive and aggressive in a situation where I might, you know, if the shooter is outside of my classroom and walks by a shooter, and again, you don't know how many shooters there are, but might, you know, believe I have an opportunity to take this person out and go after that feeling I'm going to be vindicated by my school board and by the media and all of that, because here I am trying to put an end to this. And, you know, this is, this is getting into very tricky Ter- territory, this hero mentality. There's actually a word for that I'll talk about in a little bit. So let's get into the, the article, um, part of the article about this. Okay. So it was in the Post Nation, the articles from May 27, 2018. It says, Hero teacher released from hospital after Indiana school shooting, says Congresswoman. The articles by Ellie Rosenberg and TJ Ortenzi. And, you know, of course, that'll be linked out in my write-up for this. Um, so this is two days after the shooting, the teacher was released from the, the hospital. But let's look at that headline, Hero Teacher. Okay, Hero Teacher. So immediately the word hero. And we are just like so infatuated with heroes today in society. I mean, think of, you know, the movies. Um, you know, the Avengers, um, Batman, the Incredibles. I mean, it is just everywhere. So hero teacher released from hospital after Indiana school shooting says Congresswoman. Okay. I'm going to read this. Indiana middle school teacher, Jason Seaman has been released from a hospital after suffering gunshot wounds as he tackled a shooter on Friday, according to representative Susan Brooks. Seaman, age 29, was hailed as a hero Friday after students say he subdued a student who had asked to be excused from class at Noblesville Middle School West, then returned with two handguns and opened fire. Our science teacher immediately ran at him, swatted a gun out of his hand, and tackled him to the ground, 7th grader Ethan Stonebreaker told the Associated Press. If it weren't for him more of us would have been injured for sure. Seaman and 13-year-old Ella Whistler were wounded by gunfire in the shooting. Whistler is listed in critical but stable condition, according to a statement released by her family. She has um, improved and she's she's doing well. Um, President Trump praised Seaman on Twitter Saturday, calling him a very brave teacher and hero for his automatic action. Automatic action. Okay. A police officer assigned to the school was on duty and in the building, according to police, but students say it was Seaman, a former college football player who subdued the attacker. So we talk about a police officer assigned to the building was on duty. This student was able to get off some shots. And I want to just take a little sidebar here. Schools are being funded right now with these things called shot spotters. So when there's a shot I can identify where it's at. These things have been around in the major cities for quite a while. 
those things help, but again, they don't prevent school shootings. And school shootings occur very quickly. Um, students can get off, you know, num- high number of rounds in a short number of times. So, just saying, like technology wouldn't have that technology wouldn't have changed this scenario. Um, okay, student Ethan Stonebreaker described the incident in more detail to ABC News, saying Seaman threw a basketball at the shooter. Immediately, Mr. Seaman was yelling and running right at him and tackled him to the ground. Ethan said, I was trying to stay crouched behind the back table, but also see what's going on. And that's when Mr. Seaman was running right at him with his arms in front of him, and then he just tackled him against the wall. Then they were on the ground after Mr. Seaman swatted the gun from him, and he just laid on the shooter so he couldn't do anything. Police said they arrested the shooter and said the situation resolved fairly quickly, but did not confirm the accounts of Seaman's reaction or details about how they arrested the shooter. Wait till one day we can tell that story, Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter said, according to the Associated Press. You'll be proud of them, too. Seaman released a statement published by local media outlets Friday, thanking the police and emergency responders for their action and care. I want to let everyone know that I was injured, but I am doing great. The statement said to all students, you are all wonderful, and I thank you for your support. You are the reason I teach. Seaman's mother, Christy Seaman, said in Facebook posts that he had been shot three times, once through the abdomen and once affecting his hip and forearm. So, again, I'm going to read the tweet that President Trump put out. Thanks to very brave teacher and hero Jason Seaman of Noblesville, Indiana, for his heroic act in saving so many precious young lives. His quick and automatic action is being talked about all over the world. Okay, okay. So this article actually goes on longer. So I I truncated it a little bit, but you get the point. So we have... um, Students, you know, who are very thankful, very appreciative of this teacher. And so he throws a, he, he does things which make a lot of sense. I mean, throwing a basketball, trying to disrupt the shooter. And that's that's been proven that once a school shooter typically comes in, that they anticipate a certain way that things are going to play out. And if you can, if that, once that gets disrupted, um, for example, like now he's encountering semen, which um, he's not expecting this teacher to be throwing basketballs and running at him. So he's he's having to deal with that, takes his focus off of the other students. Um, now, of course, he could have pointed the gun and killed semen in one shot. So, um, you know, that, that could have also happened. But obviously, tons and tons of praise for this teacher. You have it from the president. So you are not going to get any, I don't know what the policy was, but again, you don't have any discussion of, of was this the effect, was this the way that we want teachers to resolve these situations? Okay. Um, and I think that's the discussion schools have to have because other teachers are going to come forward this fall you will see a lot of these trainings in schools, a lot of these high-intensity trainings, which will involve, um, you know, basic how to try to disarm somebody and things like that. Um, And teachers are going to be asking the question, am I going to be, is this the expectation for me? I mean, flat out, am I going to be expected to be the Jason Seaman of going out and taking down the shooter if there is one in my school? Um, and I'm not sure how administrators will answer that. I don't think anybody will put it in policy. Something will be very vaguely written saying you have the right to defend yourself or to act in the best interest of your students if it involves their, um, you know, their, their lives or their, but again, what are we taught during lockdown drills? And that's going to, your lockdown drills will still be run where you're getting people behind doors, locking doors and being quiet because we know that most shooters will come into a building, 
Um, they might shoot their way into a building, but then if a door is locked, like a classroom door, they're not going to bother to try to blast the door open and get into the classroom. They're going to keep going to a door that might be open or a commons area where there might be people. So you're not going to run drills which are going to simulate the scenario that Jason just went through. I mean, you might have a training you go through where that's professionally done with like police and some companies you can contract with to do things like that, but that won't be your typical drill. You know, it'd be like running a fire drill one time when you actually had the fire department with, you know, some trucks outside. So you got to see, that's how they used to do it in my, when I was young and in school, they had one drill a year. So you'd have like a fire drill every month, but they had one when they would actually park the fire trucks all outside the school. And um, so you'd come out and they would, you know, firemen would be there as if there was actually a fire situation. So to give some more authenticity to it, um, or imagine a fire drill where, you know, you go into hallways and there's a, something put up in a hallway, like an upside down garbage can saying this hallway is blocked. Um, you, you must use another exit or something to, to indicate that maybe there's smoke or something going on in that hallway. But you wouldn't do that for every drill. So this whole thing too is like this, this is going to change, I think, um, the philosophy of the start of school year drills and teaching teachers how to use some self-defense things but you run into this fine line, again, because do you go after um, a shooter? I mean, we don't know how far away Jason was from the shooter. This teacher was from the shooter, how far he had to run to get to the shooter. Um, again, these are all questions. So the, a new car, the sh- Jason receives... Okay, the Ed Napleton Automotive Group recognized Jason Siemens' heroic efforts by giving him a 2008 Hyundai Elantra. Was it deserved? Absolutely. Okay, it, again, this this these, this was a heroic act, act selfless act. Um, okay, here's here's the quote from the dealership. As I read more and more about Jason, I heard him say he didn't think what he did was that heroic because it was only the acceptable action to take, said Brian Napleton, director of Midwest Operations at Ed Napleton Auto Group. In my mind, that way of thinking is what makes him a hero to me. Okay, it was the only acceptable action to take. So he's afforded much discretion. But again, in similar situations, is this the only acceptable action to take or is it to try to get students behind um, a locked door or to get them out of the, the area. Because again, if this situation plays out differently where Seaman confronts the shooter, the shooter kills him instantly, you know, like one shot he's done. Seaman is no longer available to um, see for the look out for the well-being of students who are in that hallway trying to usher them into a secured, more secured area. These are all if scenarios, but these are scenarios that will play out in events down the road. People are going to have to make these judgments. Um, so you also have a situation where, you know, this is one student. What if you have multiple students and stuff like that? But it's, it's, it's going to get very tricky to write policy. Um, for school safety. And again, my thoughts, my thoughts on this. Okay. First thought that comes to mind is um, a term called apotheosis. So A-P-O-T-H-E-O-S-I-S. It means raising a person to the level of a deity or like this hero status hero worship, which is kind of happening right now with, with Jason Seaman. The word hero is being used by the president, people in Congress, peers, things like that, media. So, and society's into this. Society's into Batman, the Avengers, Captain America, the Incredibles, heroes. So to, to use hero and to want to have a real life hero is very, very important. Um, so you now have a tangible hero in Jason Seaman. So 
I talk about direct cause and root cause quite often. Direct cause is, so this shooter comes out and to, to address the direct cause that he is shooting right now, he's shooting other students, you know, shooting at people. The, to address the direct cause, you try to neutralize the student, take, take the student out, tackle a student, um, which is what Jason did. Or it would be like that you, you, um, every, you know, everybody's going into lockdown by doors and the police are coming in and they're neutralizing, they're trying to kill the, the, per, the shooter. Okay. That is dealing with the direct cause. Now the root cause uh, is what, what's the reason? Why is a student doing this? Okay. What is, what is, bringing a middle school student to the point where they feel they need to have two handguns with them at school and need to start shooting at other people. That's the root cause. And that's where Youth Code of Silence and research, really good qualitative research, helps give insight into that. So what happened here is we had a really effective way of dealing with a direct cause um, with Jason Seaman tackling this shooter, but we don't have a way to dive in to this larger issue of root cause of school shootings, which will continue and continue. Um, so predominantly all school safety actions are directed toward direct causes. An effort towards root causes, um, they they just don't happen. They're, they're, they're not out there. Um, and the ones that do happen walk this very narrow line of, you know, also are you trying to help or are you profiling? Um, it, it's, I've, I think of, you know, like if a high school were to try to identify high school, for example, students that might be at risk for bringing harm to school, um, you can pretty much guess that students who are goth dressing in black and, and looking counterculture um, and maybe not very social um, are going to be identified. Yeah, they're, that's it. But the, empirically, we know, no, that's not it. There isn't a profile of a school shooter and goth kids are not any more likely or unlikely to be school shooters. But you're, you're going to run into those types of things um, if you're not careful in how you look at root causes. So again, we've we've now had an incident which had a um, addressed a direct cause, neutralized a direct cause, and sends, I believe, the message that, okay, if you're marketers, I talked about this early on, if you're marketers, what are you gonna market? You're gonna market uh, bulletproof backpacks, spot shooters. You're going to market training for teachers, which is going to, which will include paramilitary type maneuvers, karate, arming teachers, all of these types of things. And it's happening right now. And this fall, we'll see more than we've ever seen before. We'll see more in schools of this than we've ever seen before. These types of trainings. That I've spoken about that before. That frustrates me, but this will open the door because school boards will be like, well, look what happened, you know, in Indiana and look what teacher Jason Seaman did. And that's that worked and it saved lives, hypothetically. Um, and yeah, um, the president's behind it. So Congress seems to be behind it. So you have this whole upswell, upswell. Um, Communities, again, communities are going to be behind this. Um, why wouldn't they? I mean, that community in Indiana, potentially Jason Seaman, saved the lives of, you know, countless students and staff, people in that building. Administrators, okay. Um, you know, administrators are seeing that, well, it looks like the discretion that this teacher exercised, which, you know, um, administrators grant discretion. The, how much discretion is given to teachers really is a function of the administrator. So I think you're going to see administrators, especially in school safety, give more 
discretion, more leeway to teachers to be making these decisions in school safety situations. Um, And again, it worked in this situation. It might have worked in some others. But you do have standard operating procedures for a reason in in these things. Um, But you always, you have to have some discretion available to you. I mean, again, if you're, if you have an exit of that is, if you can open your window and get everybody out in, of, of you know, your classroom and things like that, um, should you do that or should you not? Well, in some scenarios, maybe it makes a whole lot of sense, you know, to, to do something like that. Um, teachers. This, this is a real catch-22 for teachers. Because, again, the unspoken expectation is that you will put your life on the line for your students and the students of that school if there is an intruder. Um, And not even the expectation of maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you know, that you will get people into a your, your room or into a room behind a locked door. And then if that area is compromised and there's no other exit and you have to fight, like you would fight literally for your life. This now has moved things to the teacher taking the fight to the intruder. And I'm worried about that because I think people are going to, again, you know, you're going to have some administrators, some teachers, probably not armed. They're going to see where the student is in, in surveillance, or they're going to, um, student's going to pass by a door. They are going to expose, you know, them. They're, they're going to take themselves into an area where they're, they're exposed to fire, gunfire from the student. Um, in an effort of trying to tackle that student or whatever. When, if everybody is in lockdown, for example, everybody's in lockdown and behind um, the doors um, or concealed, that the police are going to be on their way or the police already are in the school and they're going to quickly get to this location. So if you would just, you know, you're, you know, I'm thinking of a teacher even leaving a classroom and then maybe locking the door behind and so the students are there, but then trying to go out and to take on a shooter. There's just things that are going to seem right now, right as incorrect, that never seemed correct before. Um, would have seemed very out of the norm, would have been met with some critical response. But obviously not, you know, this, this shows, and it shows, I think, what society wants. So if you're going into teaching, you know, this is this is the expectation. Um, and this is what's validated. This is what's applauded. Um, let's talk about the courts. So I also think you're going to see, you know, some more um, as far as, you know, people carrying weapons in schools, teachers carrying weapons in schools, things like that, 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 that's going to legislatively be pushed more, um, and more aggressive self-defense maybe type, not even self-defense, but also, um, tactics on, I, I don't know. I don't want to use the word ambush because I don't think that's the case, but, um, I, I just think you're going to see more legislation passed toward bills which will have trainings, which will be much more aggressive versus, you know, you're going to have drills getting students behind locked doors. You're going to couple that with more and more trainings on teaching teachers how to disarm gunmen and things like that. For students, you know, the students very, um, very thankful for the teacher that this is now the students' expectations also that their teachers are going to, you know, fight for their their lives. Um, and the police, you know, I'm kind of mixed on this one because I don't know how many of the police, um, I would say most would still, you know, want, obviously not want staff to confront, you know, that they would want them to carry out, 
getting behind the closed doors and the standard operating procedure. Um, but I also, I, I'm, I'm not sure um, what, how this is going to play out with like law, law enforcement, um, what their position is, is ultimately going to be because they're going to have to take one town by town on this as they work with schools and as they talk to schools and somebody raises their hand and says, well, what if like, yeah, you know, the person is down at the end of the hallway and I feel that I can take, you know, a run at them and, and I'm, I know I could be killed, but I'm going to at least distract them if not knock them down and that's going to buy time and, or else I'm going to, possibly be able to knock them and disarm them because they'll be bigger or something. Um, and you're going to have to have police who are going to need to answer that. So it's going to get really, really complicated. And, and it, I think fractured school to school, how people respond, but what ultimately is going to happen in this is people are going to remember the, the media um, response to this. And they're going to remember that, um, you know, Jason Seaman, he's the teacher that received the car. He's the teacher that, you know, was, um, you know, leading the the parade, the grand marshal at the parade and has been on ESPN and other, you know, stations and received awards. And, and certainly there'll be many more coming his way. So, again, I don't know as a safety professional um, how school safety is going to move more toward a research or more toward a root cause um, position. Or at least, you know, if we have $100 for school safety and we had $70 toward post-incident response, you know, meaning... Uh, fortifying environments and stuff like that, 30% to things like um, threat detection and stuff like that, which is probably generous. I don't know. If, but now it's probably out of that 100 maybe like $85 is going toward fortification and teaching teachers how to fight intruders and so forth. And 15% is going toward um, threat input response, um, is going toward research. So how do we get back to where we don't, where everything just kind of shifts over toward this direct cause of, you know, it's like, let's change this up. So it's like fires. Okay. It's like fires. Um, if you, your direct cause on a fire is fighting the fire. So that's, that's, you know, the, the direct cause of the fire, your response on that direct cause is fighting, fighting the fire. Now your, Root cause is why are we having these fires? Well, maybe it's the that we're manufacturing buildings out of combustible materials. Okay, so we change and we make them out of brick instead of wood. So we've now addressed a root cause of fires, knowing that you know a brick building is not going to burn like a wood building. And we did see things like that evolve. Um, a root cause coming into of like why fires go you know, so, so fast, um, getting sprinklers into systems and, and even how they do that. I think in Vegas now, Las Vegas, they require sprinkler systems on all new homes, for example, because they know, um, that buys a lot of time to get out of, out of a home during a fire, you know, relatively speaking. Um, and also when there was the 1958 Our Lady, um, of the Angels school fire, where I believe 92 people perished. Um, most of them were students. And part of the change that came after that to address a root cause was the root cause um, involved grandfathering in of safety legislation. So the oldest parts of the building were more vulnerable to fire than the newer parts because of this grandfathering. So there was a change in saying, you could not keep grandfathering in. You had to bring things up to a modern standard. Um, so that was something that got at a root cause. But we're not we're not there with school safety. We've never been there, pretty much ever. And and it's 
now things are shifting more and more and more into these direct cause types of things. So again, we're getting away from threat, putting money into threat detection systems, teaching kids how to report, um, researching why, you know, what causes kids to, to do this. Also, why we, we kids don't break the youth code of silence, which is probably, I think, the bigger thing because it's a small end group. It's not a big group of kids you can look at who have been school shooters over the years. It just isn't. But if you look at why, you know, the number of students that knew, we knew in Bethel, Alaska in 1997, the shooting there, I think it was over 20 students knew. If you look at that population, that's a bigger end. Um, and you can look and try to figure out what, why isn't this code of silence um, being broken? And what would be your inroads there? Because the best way to address this, in my perspective, is to prevent it from ever happening, okay? To prevent it from ever happening. And that's the part that gets lost when you have a Jason Seaman tackling a student um, and then is comes out. Um, it's almost like when Reagan was shot and then, you know, came before Congress in his, his robe after he had been released from the hospital and everybody stands and, and applauds. I mean, because you absolutely have to. I mean, he, Jason Seaman is a hero. He's a terrific guy. He's devoted to his students. And he is the model that everybody wants to see of the teacher that is going to be teaching their kids. Strong person, athletic, young, intelligent willing to put his or her life on the line. That's what people want. And now they've been able to embody it into him. And um, I talked about this uh, apotheosis of, um, or apotheosis of raising him to this level of almost a, a deity. And again, if you're teaching or um, administrator, things like that, what does this mean? What is the expectation for you? Because we definitely know Jason, the response has been overwhelmingly positive in his actions and how he, um, what he did in, in, in the situation of, of engaging the shooter and then approaching the shooter and ultimately tackling the shooter. So um, thank you so much to John Grant and the 405 Media, the405media.com out of Los Angeles, California for airing the Safety Doc podcast, 2 p.m. PST. Check out 405media.com out of Los Angeles, California. My website, safetyphd.com, safetyphd.com. You can find a blog post. You can link out there um, to Podbean where all the podcasts are. I would appreciate that. Some of the shows um, that I enjoy, tjmartinell.com, Mountain Pass Podcast, um, certainly give that a check. Um, I was a guest on Paranormal Heart with Cat. Paranormal Heart, you can find that on Podbean. And that show, um, through Conflict Radio, I believe, is up around 1,700 downloads in just a couple days. So... <laughs> really doing well. Uh, but I talked about it, um, an experience that I had. You're going to have to listen to that show. has to do with um, UW-Madison, which has the most effigy mounds of any university in the world, and something that was uh, uh, paranormal. So uh, we're going to get into that in that show, or we got into that. So, um, But check it out. Um, I'm wishing everybody a safe and happy holiday, and please take care. This is The Safety Doc. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. 
Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.